Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. Also, if you've got any questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode, then go to the Contacts tab on steamspokenmirrors.com. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. We're going behind the scenes this week with an award-winning television producer and comedy scriptwriter who took his first steps into the world of entertainment by submitting one-liners to the two Ronnies before becoming one of the best producers of magic shows on TV, enjoying a 40-year career, including a long association with Chris Tarrant. His involvement in some of the most important light entertainment shows on television, including the legendary It's a Royal Knockout, are as well known as his recent work as the official biographer of comedy greats Larry Grayson and Sir Ken Dodd. Welcome, Tony Nicholson. Hi there. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tony. And I want to start with your latest volume of biography, which is a definitive work on into the life of Sir Ken Dodd. Uh, congratulations, because it's selling very, very well. I know this for a fact. I've, watched, I've looked at the analytics because I have those Thank resources. You. Published by Great Northern Books. And it's a very, very personal insight into Ken's life, isn't it? It is, yeah, because he, I, I don't know whether you worked with him, but he was a very private person. He was he chat and he was very warm and welcoming, but he, he would never talk about his private life to anybody really in the business. Um, so he was quite private, quite secretive almost. Um, and other people have written biographies about him, but all they can talk about is um, what's in, already in the public domain. So I was really fortunate that I got the Holy Grail because um, I formed a, an association with his wife um, and she cooperated with the book. And uh, so it's written really by the two of us together. I wrote it, but it's all based on interviews with Anne, his widow. Uh, the book's called The Squire of Notty Ash and His Lady, which I think is a smashing yeah. way of including Lady Anne in the title. She uh, liked the title because it, it was a real bone of contention for a while was what we were going to call it. And then I came up with that. She said, oh, that's lovely. I like that. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. And she was very biddable in affording you access to the 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 deepest boxes in Ken's archive. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think she decided it, it was a tough decision for her to decide whether to go ahead or not. But once she committed herself, she committed totally to it and did give me complete access. And 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 never, ever at any point said, no, I'm not prepared to talk about that or no, that subject's taboo. Um, because we'd sort of agreed that if we were going to do it, we had to do it properly. And um, uh, and so she she was very, very cooperative. Yeah, this was shining the spotlight on on Ken's career. Yes, you're quite right. There have been a few biographies about, about the great Doddy, uh, but none of them in, in such detail. Did you come across stuff that was an eye-opener for you? Oh, I didn't know he did that in his career. Um, not so much about his career, because I was a fan, so I knew quite a lot about his career. And I'd worked with him in the late 80s. Mm. Um, so, so, so I knew that side of him. One thing I didn't know was how religious he was, which came as quite a surprise. He was a big king church goer and very religious. And that sort of defined his comedy in a way. A, he thought uh, his comedy was a gift from God, which was his duty to share. Um, but also, if you think about it, he was always a very positive comedian and he, he didn't really like satire and negative 
humour that knocked people or was unkind. So, and hence one of his catchphrases, what a beautiful day for this, that and the other. A lot of comedians, oh, what a terrible day I've had. You know? <laughs> yes. but, but not Doddy. You know, he, he was very positive. And I think that all came back to the religion. So that, that was one surprise. But all the stuff about his private life and his family came as a surprise, really, because I didn't know any, anything much about that side of him. And a very modest and humble man living in that same house in literally in a place called Notty Ash. Yeah. For all those years. I'll tell you one thing, Colin, that I found, but, um, that I found I liked him more um, having written the book than I did before. Not that I didn't like him, but I think the press gave us a misleading view of him because he was secretive, let's face it. Then the press make up their own stories. And um, and sort of portrayed him as an eccentric, tight-fisted, whatever you know. Um, but actually, when 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 I came to discover more about him, I thought no, he wasn't he wasn't quite as bad as as they portrayed him. Mm. Um, and there were reasons for why he was careful with money, and he always admitted he was. Um, and uh, and as I say, I found I found that I did like him more. I think he was a kind gentleman, and he was very generous with his time. He would he would spend time raising money for charity. It was never publicised because he didn't want to be on the front pages talking about it. Hmm. Um, so he did it because he wanted to do it, and he would give time to other comedians. You know that not all comedians are generous in that hmm. sense. Um, some of them are quite protective and, of their territory and their material. Mm. Ken, would, Ken would talk to young comics and share his experiences, share, you know, he, if, if they were brave enough to ask him, he'd tell them, he'd tell them anything. So effectively, really, it was a labour of love for you, wasn't it, in the end? Oh, absolutely, because I've been a fan since I was a kid. Um, he was first on TV in the late 50s, and that's when I started watching television. So yeah. I was... A, I, and I loved all comedians. And I used to do an impression of it. My granny used to encourage me at the age of about eight to do your Ken Dodd impression. Isn't that so, lovely? Isn't that lovely? Yeah, Coming so full circle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sadly, she died when I was about 15, but she'd have been dead proud of me writing the book. Oh, sure, sure. But congratulations on it. It is, um, how could it not be the definitive work on, on Sir Ken's life? A beautiful recording of... of, of a life well, an incredible life well spent in comedy. Um, we'll come yeah. back to your your other magnificent biography, uh, Ke- uh, Larry Grayson, in in a minute, if I may. But going back to the get go, just after mm-hmm. you were an eight year old doing Doddy impressions to your <laughs> to, to assembled relatives, <laughs> to great yeah, encouragement. Yeah. I was what? always putting on shows in the garden and stuff. Yeah, yep. So you'd always had an interest in show business, and yet you come from not a show like me from no show business background whatsoever. None whatsoever, and and I've no idea really where it came from because my dad liked comedy, and um, my grandparents sort of like watching variety stuff on TV. But just from the, the as early as I can remember, I was not just like show business; I was obsessed by it. Hmm. Never took any interest in sport never played any sports hated it at school all i was ever interested in was putting on shows and showing off yeah but you're not a show-offy kind of person are you you are i think effectively a bit i want to say this a behind the scenes person yes i mean and and that became apparent that i didn't have the bottle to be a performer but that that was always the first ambition really Mm. And, um, I mean, you, we were talking the other day and you were saying, had I always written? And I thought about that. And I did, but it, it was a means to an end. I never thought of it as writing. It wasn't an end in itself. Uh, when I was young, I'm talking about. It was just I needed something to perform, so I'd just scribble something down. Never thought of that as being a, a process. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, then I started to realise that the writing was actually quite important, uh, and that's when I started submitting scripts. But ah, um, right. so I had always written, but hadn't realised I had, if you know. <laughs> yes, that, that's it. I came in it the other way. I had no performance uh, aspirations whatsoever, and and I, I wanted to be a writer, having always written. 
But somehow you got diverted career-wise, early doors, to become a scientist in the chemical industry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a diversion. <laughs> yeah, not your, not your average career path, is it really? Chemist <laughs> to um, TV producer. Now, it, um, because my parents didn't understand show business and thought it was a very precarious way of making a living, um, they really weren't keen on it at all. And I was reasonably bright at school and I was good at chemistry. Um, so, and the school didn't encourage us to do anything creative. So, um, so I sort of just got pushed towards university and I was good at chemistry, so I did chemistry. Mm. I suddenly realised when I was at university that I was hating every minute of it, mm. but was still doing all the shows in the background. I had my own theatre group in my early 20s. Um, and so, but I was stuck. I was sort of stuck in the chemical industry after university because I had to make a living. Yeah. So your first foray into writing and submitting jokes, I've said in the intro, was to the two Ronnies. And I'm guessing you being uh, a Yorkshire lad, you would have submitted stuff to Yorkshire television as well, your local Yeah, station. yeah. I mean, because uh, I had no idea what I was doing. And, th and the idea didn't even come from me. I, I was I joined the Scouts as a boy, and again, it was because of gang shows and the opportunity to perform. And I've done in the Venture Scouts, which is the senior teenage um, uh, branch of scouting, uh, I'd done some big show and I'd written it all. Uh, and we just performed it and I'd just come off stage, adrenaline buzzing. And one of the scout leaders said to me, you ought to send some of your scripts to the BBC, you know. And I'd never thought of that. That one comment probably changed my entire life. Um, and fantastic. So yeah, I don't know how old I'd be at the time, about 19 maybe, mm. 18 maybe. Um, and I didn't know what to do, who to send them to. Somehow I sent some scripts in and just got enough encouragement back to, to send some more, but nobody snapped my arm off to buy anything. And then, as you say, gradually, uh, oh, and uh, yes, as you said, uh, I also sent scripts to Yorkshire Television because they were just down the road. I didn't know how... ITV worked. Um, and a very nice chap there called David Nobbs, who went on to write Reggie Perrin, a oh. bit of a do, very good writer. Legend, yeah. He was um, he was their comedy scriptwriter at the time and was um, making a show with Les Dawson called Says Les. Um, so I'd sent them some scripts. David was very encouraging, very, very helpful. Couldn't have been... More charming. Didn't buy anything off me um, because Les didn't want amateurs writing for him. Um, but um, uh, but David was was very very kind to me and mentored me really and introduced me to the script editor of the two Ronnies, which is where I started to sell scripts. It's interesting at that time tone when you and I were starting that there were so many outlets for your comedy output. There's so yeah. many shows that you could submit to. They were, they embraced unsolicited material with with open arms. And there were people like Mr. Nobbs and Austin Steele and Peter Vincent uh, at the BBC who were very, very encouraging to us Tyro writers. They were really helpful. I've, I've no idea why. They must have seen something in what we were doing, but I was a slow learner. It took me a long time to sell anything. Mm, uh, yeah. But, but they, they were incredibly helpful. I think of that era as a bit like Tim Pan Alley in the music industry, where when records first started getting sold, the singers weren't writers. Mm -hmm. So Tim Pan Alley had all these songwriters who were churning out songs for the, and then the Beatles came along, changed all that, and people started writing their own songs. I, I think the same thing had happened with variety comedy. Those stars didn't know how to write. So suddenly there was a new role created for people like you and me mm. to write their material for them, throw away stuff, because they didn't want to give away their stage acts. Um, now comedians tend to be more writer-performers, so there's probably less opportunities now. Well, they definitely are. Oh, absolutely, yeah. T times do change. And uh, there is no market really for uh, a scriptwriter of our style, I think, these days. 
Um, is that how, by submitting material on, a, an, on an ad hoc basis, that you came into contact with Chris Tarrant? Yeah, yeah, because you'll remember, as you, as you sort of get yourself known and get a, a bit established, I'd still got the day job, I was still working in the chemical industry, but I was starting to get commissioned to write for Little and Large and Les Dawson and Lenny and Jerry and Three of a Kind and stuff. Um, just bits and pieces. And I got a letter from OTT, which was Chris Tarrant's um, adult version of Tiswas, if you like. And it had, had a bit of a panning in the press uh, the first week. And I think they realised they needed stronger comedy material. So they wrote to a lot of people. I don't know if you got the letter, but I, I got just a round-robin letter. And I nearly didn't respond to it. Uh, and then thought, well, I've nothing to lose. So I sent them a few scripts. Well, they were in touch with me within days saying, Chris loves your stuff. Um, can you come down and see us? Can you write more? And um, OTT bought a lot of material from me, uh, which allowed me to buy my first car yeah. and, um, and led to the relationship with Chris Tarrant, which has been the most important relationship of my life, probably. Yes, um, I, absolutely, absolutely. But then, I guess, and I guess you were working with him when he was driving the breakfast show on Capital Radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can re remember when he rang me, because he, he had a bit of a lean time after OTT and the follow-up Saturday stay back. Mm. ATV let him go, or Central TV, as it had become. And he was having a bit of a lean time, and he rang me up. In fact, we were putting together a one-man show for him to tour around. And he said, I've just had the most strange phone call. He said, some, some company called Capital Radio just rung me up and said they want me to be a DJ. And he said, well, I'm not a DJ. I don't know how to play records. I've no idea. But he said, I've agreed to do it. If you write the links for me, we'll script the whole thing. Uh, and, and somebody else puts the records on and we'll give it a go. And 20-odd years later, he, he was, uh, he'd had a career as one of the most successful DJs on British radio. Mm. Oh, it's a, it, that's, And I worked on nearly all of that with him. Lovely, lovely, lovely stuff. You then decided, for reasons you're about to tell me, to move into television production. Why would you want to do that when you were uh, getting a great deal of traction as a as a comedy scriptwriter? Why would you want to be a producer? Well, I don't know. I, I was finding it hard to to make a good living out of just writing. I think you're much better at it than I am. Um, so the why is because I love being around TV studios. I found I was going into TV studios for shows I've written for. <laughs> And, and also, I think there was a frustration that you submitted a script and several weeks later it was mangled and came out not quite how you imagined it. Hmm. So I realised that being around the studio, and Chris used to encourage me to be around when they were recording things, and you could have an influence on how, how it was made, how it was performed, and I thought, oh, I like this. Hmm. So that's the why. Ah. The how is a completely different story because, um, I mean, it, should never have happened, really. And, and again, all that's <laughs> Chris um, No, I don't mean it shouldn't have happened in that sense. But, <laughs> but it, it, there was no logic to it happening, if you know what I mean. Because mm. I had yeah. no training in media or anything, you know, all, the, all these talented people these days coming out of media colleges. I had none of that because I'd mm. done chemistry. How did it come about then? Well, it's a bit of a long story. I don't know if you, um, if you want me to do it, but it, it does include probably the only clever thing I've done in my entire life. I'll try and keep it as quick as I can. But Chris phoned me up and said, um, I've been offered a job doing hosting a show about eccentrics and crazy pastimes, people with odd pastimes and hobbies, and they need a researcher. Um, they don't need a writer particularly although it was a voiceover script to write. Um, but he said, I reckon you could do it. And I said, well, I don't even know what a researcher is. He said, no, nah, but you're bright. You know, you can do it and you write for me and we know each other. You know, I'm sure you could do it. So long story short, he got me an interview with the producer 
And I went to see the producer, and you could just tell he wasn't in the slightest bit interested in it. <laughs> I know that. Yes, I know those meetings. He yes. couldn't look me in the eye. You know, he was so disinterested. <laughs> yes. He was late for the interview anyway. Um, and, and, he, and he just kept saying, well, what experience have you got as a researcher? And I have to admit, none whatsoever. Um, and he, he said, well, I believe, Chris, that you're a good writer, but, but you know, I, I need an experienced researcher. Anyway, long story short, the interview's going really badly. Um, and he's trying to get rid of me, trying to get me out the door. And I travelled all the way from Yorkshire to Manchester to, for this interview. Mm. And I thought, I really don't want to let this go. Anyway, saved by the bell, the phone rings, and Alan Walsh, he was called, Alan picks up the phone. And it, it, this was a Friday afternoon. And there were pla- he was planning with somebody on the phone to meet on the Sunday to watch the American Civil War Society reenact the Battle of Little Bighorn, like you do, of a Sunday. Mm. Um, and he was arranging to meet this bloke. So I was listening into all this. And I, when he hung up, I said to Alan, I tell you what, I know this interview's gone really badly, but I said, for, for free, I'm willing to turn up on the Sunday afternoon. I've just heard what you're talking about. If I can make myself useful, give me the job. If not, Nothing venture, nothing game sort of thing. So, so he, he, I think he was just grateful to get me out the door. So it was a good way of getting rid of me to agree. So, all right, well, I'll see you at two o'clock on Sunday afternoon in the car park at Tatton Park. Mm-hmm. So the clever bit, and I had no idea where the idea came from, was when it came to the Sunday, I went at 12 o'clock, went into Tatton Park, met all the uh, people from the American Civil War Society. They were all in the bar, so I bought them all a drink and I made copious notes about this, that and the other. Got to two o'clock, I went back out to the car park as though I'd just arrived. Mm. Alan meets me and he said, right, first thing we have to do, he says, is find out who's in charge and find out who the important people are and where they are. And I said, oh, right. And I got my notepad out and I said, well, the, the bloke in charge is this. The most interesting one is that. We've been going for so many years. I just rattled off all this stuff. And he, and he looked at me. He, he just looked at me and I thought, this has gone one of two ways. I'm not sure how this is. <laughs> yes. And suddenly he broke into a grin. And I won't tell you the real word he said, but he said, you clever little so-and-so. You start tomorrow morning at half past nine. Congratulations. And that... That, that was my start in production. I became a researcher for 10 weeks at the BBC in Manchester um, on that programme with Chris. And Alan Walsh and I, having got off to a really bad start, he took me under his wing and I stayed with him for four to five years at the BBC in Manchester. That's um, a magnificent story. A, a way to get into television. That's beautiful. Yeah, Alan yeah. Walsh, of course, was the executive producer of a question of entertainment on which you yeah, were a, a yeah. driving force on that particular Yeah, well, Alan adventure. and I became like a double act in the end. So everything he did, I did um, only on a freelance basis. But yeah, so a question of entertainment was his, it was his idea to nick the notion of question of sport and do a showbiz version with showbiz people answering questions on showbiz. Mm. Made a lot of sense to me, but it, for lots of reasons, it didn't work um, well, it did, but it, it was the wrong time. Yes, it was. Uh, I thought it was a magnificent piece. Tom O'Connor was uh, one team captain and Ken Dodd. No, no, Tom was in the chair. Tom was the host, of course. Doddy yeah. and uh, Larry Grayson. And, and the great the great Lawrence Grayson, of course. That, of course All that. three were my ideas, I have to say, which was a, a very nice feeling. Because Alan said to me, who, who do you think we should have as chairman and team, two team captains? Um, and those were all my ideas. And he said, well, I think you've been a bit over-ambitious to get those three together, sharing a bill. Mm. Um, but take them out to lunch and see if you can persuade them. And I did. Magnificent serendipity that you end up being the, the official biographer of both team captains. I know. It's funny, isn't it? Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. But in your capacity as a researcher at a television company, I, I think, would imagine it was still at Yorkshire, uh, you were involved in the mystery or solving the mystery or exposing the mystery of the, of the Cottingley fairies. Now, yeah, I, I was I, living in Yorkshire, but uh, working at the BBC in Manchester for Alan Walsh. But yeah, we were yeah. doing a program where we solved riddles for viewers 
um, and somebody had asked about fake photographs. Mm. And I'd, um, I'd heard of the Cottingley Fairy scene. You, you'll have seen the pictures, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. These two cousins called Elsie and, I don't know, uh, uh, Francis. Francis. And in, in their youth, no, young girls, in the garden with cardboard cutouts, paper cutouts of fairies prancing around. I mean, Georges Méliès, the great um, cinema pioneer, would have looked at it and thought, no, you've got to do better than that, girls. <laughs> But, but the strange thing was, though, people did believe those photographs. Arthur Conan Doyle was a great uh, flag waver for the Cottingley yeah. Fairies. I, I know that because yeah. I'm researching Doyle for my latest Scene Spoken Mirrors book. And he a great, a great logical man. Suddenly, there he, he was literally away with the fairies and into spiritualism and saying this stuff was true. But you got to speak to one of the women, the, the girls. Elsie, the, old, the older one. I, I determined that because Elsie was about 15 when the pictures were taken and Francis was only nine. Mm. So I kind of figured that Elsie would be the one that would have masterminded it all. So she mm. was the one to look for. And she'd lived in India for most of her life. She, she'd left the country because she was sick to death of people hounding her about the fairy stories. Mm. Um, and she would never admit that there were fake photos. Uh, and Kodak put, couldn't prove that there were fake photos because they weren't actually. The photos themselves weren't faked. No, they were genuine, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They weren't double exposures or, tricks, you know, um, painted onto the negatives or anything. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, long story short, yeah, I, I, it was a really difficult thing because this was pre-internet. I actually tracked Elsie down. She'd come back from living in India to be near a to her daughter who'd come back to Nottingham um, and had a family. So she was living near Nottingham um, and I tracked her down and she'd still up to the, she was 85 by then and she was still or had been denying fakery and just nodding and winking and not admitting anything. Mm. And by sheer chance, I hit the right moment and she said, um, you know, I'm an old lady now. I've got a granddaughter who I don't, want her being teased about the uh, having the dotty old granny who believes in fairies so i'm ready to tell the whole story and she told the whole lot to me chapter and verse how she did it she was wonderful her and her husband spoke me they gave me afternoon tea in their house uh, and i spent the entire afternoon with them it was one of the most fascinating days of my entire life if you don't know what we're talking about just go to your search engine and type in Cottingley Fairies and up will come some wonderful black and white photographs of, of, of Elsie and, and, and Francis with these fairies. Judge for yourself, uh, first glance, if you think they're fake or not, because it fooled an awful lot of people for a very long time. And bear in mind, Tone, this was at a time when um, photoshoppery was a thing of many, many decades into the future. Oh, yeah, we're, we're talking about 1916, I think this was. Yeah. Um, quite amazing that a working-class family had a camera even, and, and it so happened her father had a, a, his own darkroom. He was, he was an electrician. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, another great... Um, well, I suppose it's, it's not in the world of mythology. It's in the world of legend, really. One of the shows you worked on, uh, immensely proudly, I would contend, was it's a royal knockout? Uh, yeah, nineteen eighty-seven. I'm thinking. Um, you're, I'm hopeless on years, but yeah, you'd be right. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking where certainly around there, where the younger members of the royal family, uh, the princes uh, Edward and Andrew, uh, yeah. Sarah, the Duchess of York, and who were still happily married, just just married to Andrew yeah. at that time, and the, and the princess royal, Princess Anne, headed yeah. up four teams. Yeah. Of major Hollywood film stars and big television comedies, uh, comic comedians and celebrities uh, to play these wonderful, fanciful, overblown, it's a knockout type games. Yeah. Uh, the show was met with some uh, opprobrium. Is that the right word? I, was, I mean, I watched it. I watched it. It was live. It was live in America, too, wasn't it? Um. The Americans certainly took it. It wouldn't be live because it was edited. Okay, um, right. Okay. But but you, you, I know what you're saying. You saw it when it first went yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was a fact. It, it was a it was a jaw swinger. It was a proper jaw swinger, wasn't it? You say, 
I actually can't believe that these people are doing this stuff, but not in a kind of jaundiced, critical way. It was one of what? How they've agreed to do this? This is fantastic, and it was for charity. I always, yeah, no. The good thing was it made a million quid for charity, so that was good. Um, I always thought from the first day I even heard about it, I thought they shouldn't be doing this, and I still think they shouldn't. from our point of view, we were doing cartwheels down the street. You know, I mean, can you imagine the excitement in the ITV offices now if William and Kate and yes. Meghan and Harry rang up and said, we want to do a royal version of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of It. Yes. You know, you can imagine the excitement. Well, that's how we were. But I thought they're crazy to do this, but we'll, we'll get an interesting programme out. Yeah, yeah. It was watched, you know, by a record viewing figure. It was shown on the BBC um, in June to 20 odd million. And then it was repeated two days later to about another 10 or 12 million. Amazing. That's, that's like half the country in yeah. three days. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it's had a bad press. Well, it got a bad press at the time, I suppose, but I think the people enjoyed it. And it was what it was. It was never going to be, you know, um, a major new um, a drama or anything. It was a silly game show with members of the royal family and some absolute megastars. There was John Travolta there, Christopher Reeve, Superman, you know, was there. Tom Jones, Cliff Richard, John Cleese. Robert right, Atkinson, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a, a guest list like you wouldn't believe. And that mm. was because the royals had booked most of the guests. So I guess that was an easy phone call for you to make, phoning up Rowan's agent saying, would, would he like to do this because Princess Anne's going to be involved? Yeah, well, as I say, Edward did most of the, or his office did most of the calling. And th- in fact, I think he did it personally ah. because that way they couldn't say no. Of course, of course. Well, while you're, you, you were having a grand old time with... Uh, Ken Dodd and Larry Grayson and Tom O'Connor mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. talking to the the ladies behind the Cottingley Fairies with that scoop and then rubbing shoulders with Paul Daniels and the royal family and, and John Cleese uh, in a field somewhere yeah. in Yorkshire or Manchester, wherever it was. I got a phone call from Frank Hayes saying, I'm doing a show called The Secret Video Show with Chris Tarrant. Uh, do you want to write it? And I said, well, I don't know Chris Tarrant. He's got a writer. And he said, well, his writer's not working with him at the moment. Can you come in and, and meet CT? Said, sure. Yes, I'd like to very much because I like the man enormously. And thankfully, from my career point of view, because you'd made that diversion to television production to become a producer, uh, I had uh, uh, an association with Chris doing The Secret Video Show, which was the precursor of You've Been Framed with Beadle, uh, Sky, uh, Lose a Million, and then for, oh, for at least five or six or seven years, Tarrant on TV, that clip show. Um, and then uh, CC, CT said to me, he said, here, Edmonds, uh, you bald so-and-so. Um, Tony Nix decided that uh, he wants to get back into writing. Uh, I'd like to get him back onto, the, onto Tarrant on TV. What do you think? And I thought, well, that's very, very generous of him to even float that by me. That was of enormous generous s- spirit. And I said, well, Tony's got more right to be here than I have, quite frankly. And so you joined the team of Tarrant on TV, and that's where we first met. That's right, yeah. How that actually happened was because, I, I, looking back, I have no idea where I got the energy from. But all the time I was at the BBC in Manchester doing a full-time job producing, um, assistant producing shows and mm. really working very hard. I was also writing for Chris's radio show in the mornings. I was writing for Chris on other things and, mm. and other shows as well. I was writing for Andrew O'Connor and people like that. I yes. had no idea where I got the energy from. Then I got my first staff and only staff producer job up at Border Television um, and left the BBC in Manchester. And they were a bit naughty. They, um, they held me to my contract and said, you can't write for Chris Tarrant while you're up here, mm. which came as a shock. And Chris rang me and said, I've been offered Tarrant on TV and I couldn't do it. And so that's um, when he must have phoned you. I mean, I didn't know you then, as you say. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, so I had a four-year lull. 
I did sneakily write up bits for Chris, actually, mm. um, but yeah, not nearly as much as I had. So you took over, thankfully, and, but, and a good job for him. That was, um, that was a weird, uh, weird thing because I remember after Secret Vid and lose maybe lose a million as well, another ill-fated series that he did. Uh, he called me up and he said, "I'm doing Tarrant on TV, but only as a gig for you." Uh, you bald so and so. He said, uh, he said, they've got another writer in. So I said, well, that's fine. I've got no God given right to, to work with you. No, by all means. Then, about a week later, the phone goes one of those phone calls at 10 o'clock at night. You know, you've had them many, many more times than me. It was so and so, me, Edmonds, we're in trouble. <laughs> what do you mean, we're in trouble? <laughs> yes. And apparently, the well, whoever had had taken on the writing role of Tarrant on TV, had not made the best of fists of it to his, to, to Chris Tarrant's um, satisfaction. And so we very quickly, and I would imagine with external input from you as well, cobbled together, literally cobbled together, a serviceable script for the first show of Tarrant on TV. And that's, then that, that continued. That's my side of the story. Meanwhile, you are now producing full whack, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're, you're producing shows like um Paul McKenna's hypnotic show for Celador. Yeah. yeah, so after four years at Border Television, I'm um, I did the big move south because I wanted to do the big shows that all came out of London. Mm. Um and the, but that allowed me to work with Chris again. Um, um but yes, uh, one of the first big things I did in London was um was the Paul McKenna show. That was which a- was an absolute thrill to do. Because, and you'll be aware of this, that um, most shows that you do, you're following a template, you know, because they've been done before. You do a game show. Oh, well, this is how you do game shows. You do a talk show. This is how talk shows work. Nobody had ever done a hypnotic show before. They'd done magic shows, but that's a whole different ball game. Nobody had ever produced a, a hypnotic show before. Um and and that was exciting because you were you were writing the rules as you went along. You were creating the template. Mm. Um, and I remember we did uh, a one-hour pilot, or uh, the first special anyway that went out. I think a pilot had been done before I got involved. Um, but um, we did this one-hour special, which of course was essentially stage act, which was pretty much the same stage act that every hypnotist has done for the last hundred years or more. Mm. And um, I remember a hypnotist rang me up or wrote to me or something and said, well, that's all very clever of you, but you've now wrecked it for us all and there's nothing left. Um, you won't be able to make any more television out of it because that's it. You've, you've done the whole thing. I'm very proud to say that I think largely due to, well, a lot to do with my input, we then went on to create about another 20 or 30 hours of it mm. over the next four years because yeah. we worked out a way that it could evolve. It hadn't needed to when it was in theatres. They could all do the same thing, but we had to find a way of making it evolve. So that was a really exciting thing to do. And Paul wasn't a television performer. Um, so it was good working with him because he needed producing. Mm. Um, there's... I was thinking about this the other day, that I've, I've produced people like Noel Edmonds and Philip Schofield and Chris Tarrant, as you know. Mm. That's all very prestigious, but actually the most satisfaction comes from producing Stephen Mulhern when I first got hold of him at the age of 18, mm. Paul McKenna, who'd never been on television in his life before, because um, you can you can help them create a persona, help you, you, you do your job, you produce them. Mm. Uh, where you can't produce Noel Edmonds. He was at the peak of his game doing Noel's house party. When, yes. By the time I worked with him, more prestigious, but, you know, not as satisfying to me. For sure. I, I, so let's go on to Stephen Mulhern, because uh, that show that, uh, did you create the quick trick show for CITV? No, that was Andrew O'Connor's idea at Objective Productions, but he knew, Andrew and I go way back. Um, and and we had a very good relationship. And um, he knew I was very interested in magic. I'm not a magician myself, but mm. I'd, 
I'd always been a big fan of magic as a kid and read books and know, know a lot of stuff about magic. So I was quite good at producing magic, even though I couldn't do it myself. So how did you... Got, sorry. No, I was, I was just going to cut across you to say, how, how did you happen upon Stephen Mulhern? Did, was, was the show based around Stephen Mulhern's abilities as a magician, or did you think, hey, here's a, here's a magic show, let's find a magician? Uh, that's a good question. He was, at that time, he was doing the CITV links into children's programming. Um, and he was only 18, as I say. I think mm. he'd been a Butlin's red coat. Um, and, but Andrew must have known he was a magician. Mm. I'm not quite sure which way around it came. But anyway, um, he, he, CITV were very keen to because he, he's a talented young man, you know, mm. um, and I, CITV were keen to uh, promote his career, and we knew he did magic, so so he became the natural host for the Quick Trick Show. Um, and he was he was great to work with. The first day that we filmed with him, he was terrible. <laughs> he was shouting and overexcited, waving his arms around. It was, uh, it, he was, uh, um, we had to take him on one side and calm, calm it down a bit and, mm. you know, just just play it for TV. Don't play it like you're in a pantomime or anything. Yes. Um, it's and what Jeff Stevenson calls playing to the back row of the theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that went on, I think we did about four or five years with the Quick Trick Show. And we got better and better at doing it. And he he was he was like a sponge, was Stephen. He was very good to work with, very mm. quick, very bright, would always listen, always mm. ask the right questions. He was very good to produce. Um, yeah. It became a big hit. It, it, it was uh, it was very different from the traditional magic shows. I'm going back to the, the times of David Nixon uh, and, of course, the legendary Paul Daniels. But you you took a nice, neat spin on the Quick Trick show. So much so, it was so successful, so popular. You won a, you won a children's BAFTA for it. We did, yeah, yeah. And that was um, a very proud achievement, winning a BAFTA. Because it's mm. although it was for children, it was a proper BAFTA. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, I think, yeah, where we got quite good was because I had some very clever magic consultants working behind the scenes. And they would say, we've got this trick where it can make this appear or that disappear or that turn into something else. And I was reasonably good at saying, well, what if we took that out to Madame Two Swords and do it next to a statue of oh. uh, Carly Minogue or what, whatever, mm. you know, mm. so that so that we could dress it up. And I think that's why it won the BAFTA, that it, we put a lot of work in. We'd go all over the place filming it. We did magic, um, sort of for kids, but but it was very grown-up sort of magic and, mm. in all sorts of amazing locations. Um, and, of course, you had the great Pat Page as your magical advisor, one of the great I legends. Yeah, sadly no longer with us. But I'd worked with him before that, actually, um, many, many years ago up at Border Television. Um, and, yeah, Pat, in my mind, was the ultimate magic consultant. Mm. Never did see his live act, but I think but he, what he didn't know about magic wasn't worth knowing. Yeah. You then... Resort, resorted, yeah, sure. Yes, I'd like to say resorted <laughs> as a writer. You then decided that, actually, no, I've gone as far as I can as a producer. Uh, I'll go back to writing. Bit of Tarrant on TV, where we first met. You then had can some... I, can, I just, can I just stop you there? Because you're being over generous. In actual fact, what happened was there was a lull in my producing career. I was only ever freelance, really. And the phone sometimes just stops ringing. I just wasn't in demand anymore. Mm. So it wasn't that I was forced back to writing, but Chris very kindly um, said, well, if you're not producing at the moment, there's writing to be done. Mm. But that's, you know, that's really how it happened. Because I've got this little bald so-and-so, uh, and he's not very good. So you're the cavalry. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. No, no, I, I felt bit naughty coming in really when you'd made it your own oh I, well actually yeah okay now i've got i've got an echo of a memory of, of you saying oh, i remember you coming into that room no lying you were already in the 
meeting room at Tarrant on TV, sitting there, and I came in, and I'm bound to say that you were a bit sheepish. Because mm-hmm. you, did, you didn't know what my reaction was going to be. Yeah. Basically, I would imagine on previous reactions that you might have encountered with other writers or something. No, and not you, particularly. Just, just you would have had every right to say, what's he doing here, really? And I think probably I surprised you with my thing. Oh, my secret thinking, thank God you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was that, but I think, in fairness, you and I hit it off pretty well right away, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And long, and long has it prevailed. Uh, after Tarrant on TV, uh, you had many, many magnificent ideas for ITV, including uh, celebrating ITV's 50th birthday, uh, which I think might have gone for nothing until you flagged up the idea to, was it John K. Cooper? Um, well, his production company made the program, but um, uh, and yeah, what had happened was um, I'd been at, I was writing the um, the citations for the Baftas, and and I loved that job. It was a great job, and I used to chat to all the stars that I'd written for just before they went on to do their little bit. Hmm. And I was talking to David Jason, and. Um, you know, he was getting some, like some lifetime achievement thing, I think, or you know, some, for his amazing career. And I was saying, I've been a fan of yours since I was a kid. I remember you on Do Not Adjust Your Set. And he said, blimey, you've got a good memory, haven't you? And he said, yeah, because he said, I wouldn't be standing where I am today if it wasn't for ITV. Mm-hmm. And I thought, ooh, now, isn't that a good idea? Because everybody thought of Jason as a, as a BBC star. Hmm. ITV are about to celebrate their 50th anniversary. Wouldn't it be great to have a load of big, big stars who could say, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for ITV? Hmm. Um, And, of course, ITV loved that idea. Because there's people like Victoria Wood we did, Bruce Forsyth, Roger Moore, Hmm. um, uh, and Jason himself, and Simon Cowell, who, who, um, well, Simon Cowell's very much an ITV star, but, Victoria Wood and David Jason, you tend to think of as BBC stars, mm. but actually got their first break on ITV. So ITV loved that idea, and we made a super um, two-and-a-half-hour-long um, piece about all these big, big stars who started on ITV. Mm. Yeah, a, a magnificent celebration. Um, you then, I suppose, decided that you'd hit a certain age. Um, and uh, I would venture to say that once again, the phone necessarily wasn't ringing as regularly as it had been. What prompted you to go into writing biographies of famous comedians? Well, for one thing, I've, uh, all my life, I've read uh, biographies of comedians. I've got loads of them sitting uh, all around me in in the office where I'm sitting now. Mm. Um, So I'd always enjoyed reading them, but never had time to write one. But always thought one day, wouldn't it be lovely if I actually wrote one myself because I'd have so much pleasure out of them. And towards the end of um, uh, sort of my producing life, I'd moved into this area of making documentaries about Tommy Cooper, Kenny Mm. Everett, um, who else did I do? Stanley Baxter and, uh, and and these pieces for the ITV thing about Bruce Forsyth and stuff. Mm. So I'd, I'd got into that kind of programming mm. um, and thought, I really like all this. I like, I've, I've still got a great fascination for that era of comedy. Mm. So, um, yeah, as you say, um, I turned 60 and the, and the phone stopped ringing, really producing a young person's game. Uh, and I thought, well, I've now got time to write the biography I've always wanted to write. And, and then I had to decide who um, mm. and had to think. And I thought, well, I need some angle here. Um, and I discovered that uh, nobody had really done a, a, a biography of Larry Grayson. And I thought, well, I've worked with him. I knew him. I got quite friendly with him over the course of a year that I worked 
Uh, so I, I had my own slant on, and I thought I can only write about somebody that I liked and was a fan of anyway. Um, and Chris Tarrant's manager, who I knew very well through Chris, mm. was Larry Grayson's manager. So I thought, well, I've got access there to information as well, because obviously you need access to um, finding out stuff about these people. So that's how the first one came about. Yes. Um, of course, um, I've just got to cut across you now because I've got an echo of a memory. I, because I worked for you, and I guess this is at a time of some transition as well, on a series that you created called Must See TV, uh, which were specials about my favourite television shows, thank God, uh, The Avengers, The Sweeney, Minder, uh, Spitting Image, and and two others that I actually can't remember. But I suppose at that time, because you were back in documentary making mode maybe that kind of fashioned your idea towards uh biographies as well Well, that was that must see tv was the start of me doing those because that had spun off from the itv anniversary Mm -hmm. um bizarrely and you will have never heard of this before i certainly never had itv came to us and said we liked your documentary for our 50th anniversary so much why don't you make a series celebrating must-see ITV television? So that's how that came about. Ah, okay. Um, and as you say, within those, that's where I did, um, I, we did one about Tommy Cooper and one about Kenny Everett. Yes, of um, course. Yes. And, and that's where I started doing those biographical type mm. programs and found yeah. I was loving it, you know, loved it. Um, yeah. Think was reasonably good at it. Mm. Oh, that, that was a good series. I like the fact with with Mussy TV that you got uh, Sir Trevor McDonald talking about Tommy Cooper. Those kinds mm. of yeah. di- diametrically opposite personalities. That, yeah. was, that was a lovely notion. And he I, was great to work with because he was a big comedy fan. He loved Peter Sellers and Tony mm. Hancock. He was he liked all the comics that I'd liked. So so Trevor and I got on very well. Did you at any point, candidly? ever asks to Trevor, we're making this wonderful celebration of Tommy Cooper. Would you put the fez on for me? Did you ever say that? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> okay. uh, I don't know whether he ever did, because we went to the, we took him filming to the Magic Circle, where they've got a lot of Tommy's props. Hmm. I'm pretty sure he held up a fez. Whether he ever put it on, <laughs> I Just the magical moment of Sir Trevor MacDonald. Yeah, it would have been. Doing the hands and the voice yeah. and the hat. Um, so the Larry Grayson, uh, you hit pay dirt with Larry Grayson because while I'm scratching through the, the smallish, I would imagine, Grayson archive, you happened upon treasure, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you exactly what happened with that. I'd, I'd really had to start writing the book in the middle because he didn't become famous till he was nearly 50. Um, and then, of course, from being famous onwards, his career and everything was quite well documented. There were people that you and I know that he knew that I could interview. Um, and Paul Vaughan had been his manager in that period, so I could interview him. So I've got lots of information about his life as a star from 50 onwards. But I was really struggling to find out about his early career and his early childhood and life as a, as a, in a family. Um, I knew bits because I knew he'd been fostered, but he wasn't brought up by his own mother and father. Um, but I was really struggling to, to know how to start the book. Anyway, long story short, I'd... Um, kept hearing in interviews that he'd done, you know, I was looking at old archive interviews and reading things, magazine articles, and he kept referring to this autobiography he was writing back in the 80s, that would be, I suppose. Mm. He told Wogan, he said, I'm in the middle of writing my autobiography. I thought, well, that never got published. Whatever happened to it? And uh, I asked Paul Vaughan, his manager, he said, no idea. I don't know whether he ever finished it or whatever. Anyway, so that was frustrating, but teasing, because I knew somewhere it was out there. And Paul Vaughan invited me to go up to a storage warehouse um, in uh, in the Malvern Hills, where all Larry's paperwork was had been stashed after his death and had been gathered 
bothering dust for 20 years. Mm. So I went up there and started going through it and found some great photographs, Larry as a baby and all sorts of stuff. Um, lots of boring stuff, just paperwork, letters and cuttings. And um, and, and the, the day was disappearing. So Paul Vaughan said, take two or three boxes away with you and have a look at them at home. So right in the bottom of one of these boxes the next day, I thought, what's this folder? It's a big, thick folder of foolscap paper. That dates it. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and all handwritten. And I thought, hang on. And it was, that was the autobiography that had never been published, written in, just in hand, mm-hmm. all crossed out and scribbled. And actually, it wasn't terribly well written because he wasn't an educated man. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't Larry, he'd left school at 14. But it gave me all the anecdotes, all the st- stuff about his childhood. It was the Holy Grail. It was an Indiana Jones moment for me. It was that. It was wonderful. Fantastic. That's lovely. The book... Uh, shut that door. Yep. Uh, what else was, could I have called it? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Big success because um, as in the documentary, the subsequent documentary on Larry's life that you produced, in, in which you invited me to be a talking head, uh, it was very apparent that Larry was a, such a trailblazer uh, in the gay community, but not necessarily at that time, only on reflection, 20 years after his death, is he perceived as, as, as a gay trailblazer on television. Yeah, yeah. And, and I got Julian Clary to write the, um, the foreword for the book because Julian says how, what a trailblazer he was from his point of view. Mm. And I think, I think uh, bizarrely, his, his catchphrase was shut that door, I think Larry opened the door for all those comics. Um, yeah. No, there wouldn't be Alan Carr and um, and Graham Norton and Paul O'Grady mm. and all these mm. camp comics on TV now if it wasn't for him, I think. And Julian yeah. certainly agreed with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but bizarrely, he had quite a rough ride with the gay community at the time. Mm. They thought he was portraying a, a camp persona that they weren't, comfortable with on mm. TV. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there was John Inman doing the same, really, and are you being served? For sure. I thought, I thought I said this on your documentary, and I don't use these words lightly, but I thought Larry Grayson was a comedy genius because he was one of those people that could walk on stage, look at the crowd, and reduce that audience to fits of laughter with just a glance. I, I saw him when I was 16 at the Princess Theatre in Paynton. Yeah, it must have been. Was it paint and tone? Yes, it was. Mm, um, yeah, well. um, and this, this man stole the show. The reduce, uh, he reduced the audience to helplessness with, with this wonderful stuff that we'd never seen on TV before. Shortly afterwards, I want to say six months, he, he was on TV, thank goodness, and his career blossomed. Uh, but thank goodness that you, you were there to, to, to revive the memory of Larry Grayson because I think he fully deserves it because I think he's a comedy icon. He was a wonderful performer. I mean, just going back to you seeing him in paint, he was bottom of the bill then, wasn't mm, he? Yeah. Right, right it, down by the printers, down at the bottom. That's what Brush was uh, about. And, and was top of the bill within 12 months, mm. uh, and as I say, at the age of nearly 50. Yeah. Um, but what, what was clever about Larry was his performance skills. Because mm. apparently um, he, uh, you know what it's like on a royal show, because he never wrote his act down, really. It was all just a stream of consciousness. Yes. He and a writer would sit and chat in the dressing room, but nothing ever really got written down. Mm. But for a royal show, you had down what you were going to say because somebody had to approve it for the mm. royal ears. Um, and some American comic, apparently at a royal show, saw Larry's act written down and said, how the hell do you get laughs with this stuff? <laughs> because if you actually look at it in black and white, there's nothing there. Yes. It was pure performance, genius yes. performance. Yes, it really was. It was utter genius. Um, and I, I, I loved him. I thought he was a wonderful man. I'm so pleased, thanks to you, that his, his legacy now lives on. And that book's called Shut That Door. Uh, coming out in paperback soon. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been a long time out as a hardback. I didn't think the paperback was ever going to happen, but I think it is. It might be early next year now, yeah. Fantastic. And I urge you to 
go to your local bookshop and order it up because it's a lovely, lovely read. Um, as is, of course, uh, the Ken Dodd book, uh, The Squire of Naughty Ash and His Lady. Uh, did that, did the success and your diligence with the Larry Grayson biography oil the wheels, grease the wheels when it came to opening a few doors f for you to get the Dodd gig? Yes, uh, is, the, is the quick answer to that. It, it happened strangely because um, I wrote the Grayson book and took that to our mutual friend, Mark Wells, who you've interviewed for your podcast, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and we made the TV documentary about Larry based on the book. And then Mark and I made a documentary about Ken after his sad demise, mm -hmm. um, and we left it a, respect, a respectful time after Ken's death before we approached Lady Anne, um, and she agreed to do the documentary, which I produced and went out on Boxing Day, the year, uh, yeah, the year of Ken's death. Um, and while we were doing that, I, I was getting on really well with that, and it was my job to interview for the documentary. Um, and I said to Anne at some point, you know, it was obvious we were getting on well, and she, was, she felt comfortable talking to me because she'd never spoken about Ken ever before, ever, not to a newspaper, nothing. Um, and yet she was a performer herself, so she was comfortable in front of the camera and gave a wonderful interview about Ken for this documentary. Mm. Um, and she, she liked the fact that I was sensitive about why I asked certain things. And I said to her at one point when we were up in Nottingham, she said, um, you didn't fancy writing a book about Ken with me, do you? She looked at me a bit oddly, and, and, and I said, well, it's just a thought. Give it some thought. And then I gave her the Grayson book. I said, just read this, because that's one I've written, and you'll see how I write. And we could do a similar sort of thing about Ken. And um, she read the book and liked, liked the Larry book, and then rang me up and said, do you know what? Let's do it. So, so that's how that came about. Fantastic. So it <laughs> So it was the other way around from the Grayson, which went book first documentary. Then with Ken, it was documentary, then book. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. What's, what's fantastic is, is the whole thing coming full circle from, mm -hmm. from standing in that field, talking to the, uh, the Civil War reenactors uh, yeah. and getting amongst them and doing your research there, finding the background stories there, mm -hmm. to getting that scoop with the, uh, with the Cottingley fairy lady, Francis. And then coming full circle to actually uncovering gold dust with Larry Grayson and and Ken Dodd. I, it's amazing that you haven't pursued a career as an investigative journalist, really, rather than wasting your time writing blooming old jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I've just I'm so obsessed that I just get I'm very focused, very diligent about mm. things. Yes, I, I think, and I think you need to be toned. I think you need to be focused and diligent when you break into television as a writer. I'm sure you'll endorse that. It, it, it's got to be your raison d'etre. You've got to have total, total blinker. I'm going to be a television writer, uh, and there's nothing they or anyone else can do about it. You know, I'm going to. Oh, it, I've got, I've got a pile of rejection letters. I still think I've got them all. Hmm. Um, that you wouldn't believe. I mean, how I bounce back, but you just have to. You just, I wouldn't take no for an answer. Hmm. You know, I just kept getting knocked back and rejected, but somewhere somebody was encouraging enough. Yes. But and of course, there's no guarantee. I mean, I always uh, put it in, I was equated to banging your head, getting into television as writer was like banging your head against a brick wall. Either your head gives in or the wall does, but you've got mm. to keep bashing. Mm. And uh, you've got to want it badly enough. Yeah, a, a great deal of cost. That phrase I've often used that you, you can imagine as a TV producer, lots of people have asked me over the years, how do I get into television? And my simple answer is exactly that. Want it badly enough. And if you want it badly enough, because there is no easy route, there's no career path, no do this, do that, and you will end up, you know, like you, perhaps if you wanted to be an accountant, there is a certain career path um, to do. But mm. 
with TV, you know, my my way in was so bizarre, but um, uh, but I just wanted it so badly that sooner or later they were going to have to give in because I wasn't giving up. Yeah, good. And and here we are, umpty, many many decades later, mm. uh, still right, still still involved in show business, still writing stuff for Tarrant mm. and various other people, mm. I'm sure, uh, and writing books now. It's you, you, your career has been. Uh, nimble you've got to be fleet of foot you've got to mm. dance dance from camp to camp to keep going and your uh, your career has been a, a magnificent exercise in longevity and well and I, I admire you though because you've done it all through writing i don't think i could have done that i think my my the secret of, of making it a living on my life um because a lot of people give up um has been having the two strings to my mm. bow that when the producing was working well, that was great. But if that flagged, I could go back and do some writing. Not that I ever thought of that as a secondary career. It was, it was, you know, it was equally important. But but I had the two things, and if one wasn't happening, then the other was. Yeah. Sometimes it meant I was so busy I had to turn stuff away. But better that way. Absolutely. But congratulations on a terrific career. Hearty congratulations on the Ken Dodd wonderful wonderful definitive biography it's called the squire of Notty ash and his lady by tony nicholson and it's published by great northern books yeah who are a fairly small publisher but but really nice to work with they really cared they really wanted this book very badly and um, uh, and have been great to work with and so if, if you're in any way interested in show business, that's get down to your local bookshop and do get that. I urge you. I'll publish the, the links, uh, how to get it um, on the website. Uh, and at the end of this, uh, this particular chat we've had tone, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. It's, you're it's very a, welcome. It's a joy to know you. And it's been a real pleasure for you to, to chat with me. Thank you for giving me your time. Thank you. Thanks folks. See you next week. Thank you.